Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you hunt for words? Consider, and then we will speak. Why are we counted as cattle? Why are we stupid in your sight? You who tear yourself in your anger, shall the earth be forsaken for you, or the rock be removed out of its place? Indeed, the light of the wicked is put out, and the flame of his fire does not shine. The light is dark in his tent, and his lamp above him is put out. His strong steps are shortened, and his own schemes throw him down. For he is cast into a net by his own feet, and he walks on its mesh. A trap seizes him by the heel. A snare lays hold of him. A rope is hidden for him in the ground. A trap for him in the path. Terrors frighten him on every side and chase him at his heels. His strength is famished, and calamity is ready for his stumbling. It consumes the part of his skin. The firstborn of death consumes his limbs. He is torn from the tent in which he trusted and is brought to the king of terrors. In his tent dwells that which is none of his. Sulfur is scattered over his habitation. His roots dry up beneath and his branches wither above. His memory perishes from the earth and he has no name in the street. He is thrust from light into darkness and driven out of the world. He has no posterity or progeny among his people and no survivor where he used to live. They of the West are appalled at his day and horror seizes them of the East. Surely such are the dwellings of the unrighteous. Such is the place of him who knows not. God. Let's pray. Lord, we come once again to this incredible book that you have given us. Lord, an insight into what it means to suffer, to question, to be interacting with people who are misunderstanding your situation. Lord, to have friends who want to help but are not being helpful or to have ideologies that are thrust on us that are not consistent with who you really are. And in, in the midst of this pressure cooker of suffering, Lord, you have, you have given us this, this beautiful gem, the book of Job. Help us, Lord, now as we come to it to be humble, to, to see ourselves as people who need this. And Lord, would you allow me as your messenger to be faithful to this text, to be the mouthpiece, Lord, that simply conveys your truth to your people for your glory. We ask this, Lord, in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, we're back in Job. As obviously you know, we've been working our way through this book um, and this morning we're coming to uh, chapter 18, which is a pretty well-known chapter in the story of Job. I will begin by asking you a very, very serious question this morning. Obviously, by that statement, you know it's not that serious, but it is a serious question. How many of you like to go camping? Okay, good. You're just, I'm setting you up. Okay, just know that, all right? Now, 
when you go camping, you go from one world to another, don't you? You go from a home with electricity, running water, soft beds, a dishwasher, air conditioning, refrigeration, comfortable and clean bathrooms, domesticated animals. When you go camping, you're in a tent without electricity, without running water, at least nearby, a deflated air mattress, no dishwasher except for your hands and your children, melting coolers, bathrooms off in the jungle somewhere, really bad coffee, lions and tigers and bears. Oh my, yes. I remember when I was pastoring in Michigan and um, we had a church about the size of this, maybe a little bit smaller, and every year I would take the young people on a camping trip, and it was really a lot of fun. And uh, we went to uh, camp in the northern part of Michigan, a place called Lake Ann. It was a Christian camp. They had camp going on, but we camped separately from them. And um, we, we got there, and we pulled out our tents and set them up and staked them down and inflated the air mattresses, and everything was set, got our chairs out, and you know, started a fire and kind of enjoyed the evening, and then it started to spit, started to get, you know, stronger and stronger. And that was about 9 o'clock or so, about midnight, you know, it was still drizzling and stuff like that. We're like, okay, we'll be fine. You know, we're, we're, we're now in our tents, and then a storm came. Now, I don't know if you've ever been camping in the middle of a storm. Let's just say when they say that your tent is waterproof... It's not. And water is dripping now through the tent, right? Through the, through the top, even with the covering, it's still, it's dripping through. And your clothes are now wet. And the only, you know, salvation you might have is that you're on a mattress, which is deflating at that point in time. It's wet. Your sleeping bag is wet. You're wet. Your clothes are wet. And not only that, it is pouring down the winds are so strong that they've pulled up the edges of the tent. The only thing that's holding the tent down now is you because the tent now is wrapped around you. And so that night, all of us were in tents like that and, and everything was just turned upside down and we got out of our tents and we all went to the 15-passenger van that we had driven up that day. A bunch of smelly dirty, wet teenagers and their pastor. And we were all miserable, longing for the other world <laughs> where beds are soft and dry and clothes are dry and available and you're warm and you're not miserable. Now, my point in sharing all of that is this. If you choose to go camping, you have been warned. Now, the reality is, friends, that there's something similar going on in this text, even with that humorous illustration. And what's going on in this text is that, according to Bildad here, there are two worlds, two completely different worlds. The world of the righteous and the world of the wicked. 
And Bildad first challenges what he believes to be Job's attempt to change the way of the world by persistently claiming his innocence relating to his sin that Bildad believes is causing his suffering. Then Bildad describes the way of the wicked. That's most of this chapter. And he describes it as a warning to Job to change his tune, to admit that it is his sin that is the root of all his suffering. So this morning, the proposition really encompasses all of that. And I've tried to kind of direct it more to us. And that is this. Learn from the destructive path of the wicked. Don't take it lightly. It could be describing you. See, what we have here in this text is a sermon given to Job by his frustrated but well-meaning friend, And it is, for the most part, an excellent portrayal of the path of the wicked. But some of what Bildad says is an overreach, and we'll touch on that a little bit later. But it is still still good food for thought, and we could say is mostly true. And this is one of the difficulties with, with preaching or studying through Job, is trying to sort through, when it comes to the friends, what is good and right and what is not good and right. And remember, this is not God preaching to us now. God has breathed out this sermon, so to speak, of Bildad to Job for our benefit, but there are some things in it that are not helpful and accurate. And certainly the, 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 the platform that Bildad is coming from is a distortion of truth. And so the problem, that, uh, that, that Bild- the problem we have here is that Bildad preaches a good sermon to the wrong person. Have you, ever, have you ever been accused of something that you didn't do and people now are now instructing you on how you should behave or what you should do and it's like, okay, you, you don't have to tell me all that stuff because I didn't do it. But they believe you have done it. You see what I'm saying? And there, you, there's a real frustration in that whole thing. And when you preach a sermon that is being applied to the wrong person, it is not helpful Because Job is righteous. He's not wicked. He's not even close to being wicked in the sense that Bildad is talking about here. Certainly he's a sinner, but he is one who's kept his accounts short with God. So this is a sermon preached with a faulty application. And friends, there is a lesson to us all. Pastors, parents, teachers, home group and Bible study leaders. Here it is we can always run the risk of preaching or teaching our framework, our ideas, our paradigms, our hobby horses, and our pet theologies, rather than preaching or teaching the text of Scripture. In other words, we can allow our framework to color the shape of a text because it is what we believe needs to be said. Now, friends, I just want you to understand that what we're committed to here at Gateway is just coming to a text and letting the text speak. I, as a pastor, I'm not sitting back every week and saying, you know, I think this is what our people need, and I think they need this, and I think they need this. Now let me gather some scripture to kind of support that. There are times in a church's 
a life where there's, there's a need for leadership to, to assess the situation in the church and to address it, but it must be addressed with the text being the, the basis of explanation. Rather than me as a pastor saying, well, this is what they need, now I'm, I'm going to prove it from Scripture. There's a, there's a whole different mindset there. And what's happening then many times for us is that, is that we, we can allow our frameworks, and our frameworks can be all sorts of things. It could be psychology, it could be politics, um, it could be sports, it could be a certain theology that we're always talking about. And so we come and we force it into a text and we force it into an argument. That is what Bildad is doing here. He's wanting to force um, Job to see life from a certain perspective. And then he preaches a sermon based on that perspective. Now, if we do that, we end up not preaching or teaching God's word, but simply our thoughts about God's word. You don't want to hear my thoughts about God's word. What you want to hear is God's word explained. Or we're using God's word to try and prove what we want to say rather than allowing God's word to shape and guide us. You understand the difference there? It's subtle, but it's important to understand. Now, Bildad is so frustrated with Job's claim to innocence because it runs against his worldview that is shaped and fashioned, if you remember, by the doctrine of retribution. And let me just remind you what that is. All right, it's the false doctrine of retribution, where suffering takes place because of sin, where blessing takes place because someone is living righteously. So turn it around. If you are experiencing suffering, it must be because of your sin. If you're experiencing blessing, it must be because you're living righteously. Okay? That's the paradigm. That's the framework that he's coming to now in speaking to Job. Now, as we just think through this whole chapter, if you have it there in front of you, I just want you to draw your attention to some repeated words and themes in this text that give us an understanding of what it is or how he's making his argument. I want you to notice these words in verse 4, the place. In verse 6, the tent. In verse 10, the path. In verse 14, the tent. In verse 15, the tent. In verse 21, dwellings. In verse 21, place. So you have these words, the place, the tent, the path, the dwellings. These are all words that are describing a world. They're describing a realm in which someone is living their life, okay? And so, oftentimes we use it kind of theoretically. We can say something along these lines. You know, I'm not in a good place right now. And, you know, if you take it literally, it's like, well, why? Is there something wrong with the roof? Or No, you mean theoretically, I'm I'm not in the the right, you know, in in the spot where God wants me. So we can use it that way, right? But what's happening here, though, is that it's being used to describe then these two worlds. There is the tent or the place of the wicked. There's the tent or the place of the righteous. And ultimately, as we begin here, the two sections that he is going to actually reveal for us are the place or the tent of the world, verses two through four. In other words, the whole world and the place or tent of the wicked, verses five through 21, which would be the, 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 the wicked world. And understand it this way. 
there's one big umbrella that is the world. All right? And what he's going to argue here is that there is a way that world works. That's what Bildad is saying. But that world then is divided into two sections. There's the way of the wicked, and I'm calling it there's the way of the wise. Now, he doesn't speak so much about the way of the wise. We're going we're gonna to kind of use our application from this text to understand what that is. But he's describing the way the world works, and Job, if you continue down this path, you're going to be living in the world of the wicked. So that's kind of where things are going. So with that backdrop, let's think through now um, this passage. First of all, the tent of the world. How long will you hunt for words? Consider and then we will speak. Why are we counted as cattle? Why are we stupid in your sight? You who tear yourself in your anger, shall the earth be forsaken for you or the rock be removed out of its place? There's two words that we want to summarize what's going on in, this, in these few verses. What's happening here is Bildad is, is actually using some of the same language that he used in his previous speech in chapter 8 and verse 2. He says this as he begins his, his, uh, his talk with, with Job. How long will you say these things and the words of your mouth be a great wind? Remember that one? And we talked about don't be that guy, all right? Don't be that person who speaks that way. But this is Bildad now speaking to Job. And he's clearly annoyed with the fact that Job has been speaking in the ways that he has. Since Job had opened his mouth to express his anguish and his confusion and pain, he has been in, so to speak, a war of words with his friends and with God. With his friends because they're saying things that are not true, with God because he's not hearing anything. So now Bildad is saying, it's time for you to stop talking. It's time for you to be silent, to listen to the wise counsel that he and his friends have given Job. So the first word would be, or first expression would be, be silent. But then in verse 2, in the second part of it, he says, consider and then we will speak. In other words, because you have been full of empty words, Job, I want to urge you to wake up from the fog of denial and come to your senses. That expression, consider, literally means come to your senses. You know, you guys remember the, the Cheeto Cheetah? You know what I'm talking about? You go, yeah, 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 he does that thing, right? There's this idea that he just, that's, that's, you know, stop, Job, wake up, snap out of it, snap out of it. There's a way in which the world works. You've got this wrong. You don't see what is true. So be sensible. See the foolishness of your claim to be innocent and accept the counsel of me and your other friends. Listen to the wisdom of tradition, this doctrine of retribution. Then Bildad accuses Job of viewing his friends as cattle. Now, he has good reason. If you go back to chapter 12 and verse 7, Job does compare their advice with cattle. 
and concludes that the cattle can teach his friends a thing or two. This is what it says. Ask the beasts, and they will teach you. The birds of the heavens, and they will tell you. He's actually saying that the, 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 the birds and the beasts are smarter than you. And then Bildad gets to the heart of the issue with Job, and he says, you tear yourself in your anger. He's describing just Job's his words, his grief, his expressions. He's, he's fighting this battle. And then he says, Shall the earth be forsaken for you, or the rock be removed out of its place? In chapter 16, verse 13, Job had used similar language to describe what God had been doing to him. He slashes open my kidneys, is what it says in chapter 16, verse 13. It's quite a picture, isn't it? As if God was tearing him apart. But Bildad wants to reverse that that picturesque claim and turn the responsibility back on Job. See, Job is saying, this is what God is doing to me. And Bildad is saying, God isn't doing that to to you. You're doing that to yourself. Now, just remember here, you've got to make sure we understand where we're at. What what Bildad is, is preaching here can at times sound like truth. There are times when we do things to ourselves and we make matters worse because of what we're doing. But that's not what Job was doing. He says, Job, it isn't God doing this, but you. You tear yourself to pieces in your anger. You are destroying yourself because you will not accept what is true. That you are suffering because of your sin. And what Bildad is getting at here is that Job's claim of innocence runs contrary to the natural laws of the world. He's saying, you can't judge, or sorry, you can't change the way the world works. You can't remove the rock out of its place. God won't move everything for you, Job. No, you and not God will have to change your tune to fit into the way the world works. The world, he says, is a place of order and stability, and you can't change that. So you just have to stop fighting and accept it. Be silent, be sensible, stop fighting. Now, friends, the problem with the tent of the world is that its ideologies change like chaff blowing in the wind. What was the standard truth for the world 20 years ago, 40 years ago, 60 years ago, 100 years ago has now been replaced by a new and more sophisticated truth. It just, it changes. And you know that. We live in a society where it's what's blowing through now and back in such era, this is how people were thinking. And now they're thinking completely differently. And now let me just share with you uh, an interaction that, that I heard this week and, and read about this week. It was on albertmoeller.com, but it was pointing to it. It's very helpful, I think, to, to at least illustrate the point. So Nicholas Kristof of the New York Times interviewed Serene Jones, who's the president of Union Theological Seminary. So a Christian institution that has the desire to train people for ministry. That's what seminaries do, okay? And he's asking her questions about, about 
Easter, celebration of Easter. So here's question number one. Do you think of Easter as a literal flesh and blood resurrection? Now just remember, this is a seminary professor, okay? She replied, I have problems with that. When you look at the Gospels, the stories are all over the place. There's no resurrection story in Mark, just an empty tomb. Okay? Um, Those who claim to know whether or not it happened are kidding themselves, but that empty tomb symbolizes that the ultimate love in our lives cannot be crucified or killed. Okay? Yeah. Question number two. When he asks her about the crucifixion, this is what she says, the crucifixion is not something that God is orchestrating from upstairs. In other words, a sovereign God who's ordering the world. The pervasive idea of an abusive God father who sends his own kid to the cross so God could forgive people is nuts. For me, the cross is an enactment of our human hatred. But what happens on Easter is the triumph of love in the midst of suffering. Question number three. He asks now about the nature of God. And she responds, at the heart of faith is mystery. God is beyond our knowing. Not a being or an essence or an object. But I don't worship an all-powerful, all-controlling, omnipotent, omniscient God. That is a fabrication of Roman juridical theory and Greek mythology. That's not the God of Easter. And then he asks another question, and this is him speaking now. For someone like myself who is drawn to Jesus' teaching but doesn't believe in the virgin birth or the physical resurrection, what am I? Am I a Christian? And to that she responds, well, you sound an awful lot like me, and I'm a Christian minister. Now, let's think this through. When you deny that Jesus is deity, the very Son of God, when you deny that Jesus died a redemptive and sacrificial death on the cross, when you deny that Jesus rose again from the dead, when you deny that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and present everywhere, when you deny the virgin birth, when you make the claim that the idea of a divine father sending a son to die on the cross is divine child abuse, you have, in fact, denied the core tenets of what it actually means to be a Christian. Which means, then, You are not a Christian. Now, I I share that with you because what happens here is that there's this move, even in our culture, to say, well, this is what Christianity should be. Take Christ out of it, but we still want to be Christians. And now we want to turn around and tell those other people, those people who are literalists, who actually read their Bible as if it is God's word, who have this crazy idea that God sent his son to a cross to die for their sins. You see how this is playing out? They're kind of the strange ones. They're the weird ones. The true Christians are the ones who are much more progressive, who believe in the evolution of of Christianity and the evolution of the things that are found in Scripture. This is what we typically call liberal Christianity, which is not Christianity because things are denied. Now, having said all that, I'm saying this because I wanted to illustrate from our context the ways 
that the winds of the world blow like chaff in the wind. The, the religion Serene Jones is promoting is the kind of religion that suits our present culture, denies what Christianity is all about, and replaces it with a, a religion that simply wants to promote love, acceptance, and tolerance, and then turns it, basically turns to those who are holding faith, uh, holding the Word of God faithfully and are true to Scripture and who are coming to what they know to be true about God because they have a, a document that God has breathed that reveals himself and considers them as simpletons, ignorant, closed-minded, backward, unloving, unsophisticated, and the winds of the world then are turned against the faithful followers of Christ. Now, you see, what's happening here with Job is something very, very similar. You have Job who's standing on his innocence. He's standing on what he knows to be true. He's, he's actually arguing against this ideology that, that is coming from his friends. And they are wrong, and we know they're wrong. Why do we know they're wrong? Because we're told at the end of the story that, that the arguments that his friends were giving were wrong. And yet he is still having to endure this barrage of false teaching that is somehow pressing him into this mold to conform. So the point here, guys, is this, that, that we are also in a situation. We are living our lives in the context of ungodliness that is trying to squeeze us under the umbrella of Christianity into a form of Christianity that is not Christianity. It's there. And so we are a people, ultimately, who need to be silent. That's what they would say. And we are a people who need to be sensible, to start listening with a little bit more of an open mind. That the way the world works is not the way you think it works, but it's the way we think it works. So you see the problem with that? So here's Job, and he, he's, he's taking all this in. There's this battle raging between Job's friends and Job. And his friends have a distorted view of God and how he is working in the world, but they're convinced that they are right. And the basic premise here, then, that, that Bildad is bringing out is this. Job, the tent of the world, is stable, it's ordered, it's traditional. Don't mess with it. Now, if you do mess with it, this is what's going to happen to you. And he goes now into the rest of the chapter describing the tent or the path or the world of the wicked that ends up with death. This is, this is their road now, I might want to say, to destruction, their road to death. Could have entitled this sermon, Highway to Hell. It would have been great on a billboard, but you know, I don't like church signs, so we chose not to do that, right? So what we have here then is Bildad detailing the awful death of the wicked because he believes that Job is suffering for his sin. So there's a sense in which what he's saying here is a warning to Job. This is how the, this is how the, the wicked live. This is their world. And I'm worried that you are, if you persist, are going to be heading down that path too. All right? Now, let's jump in and find out what it says here, this description of the tent of the wicked. And there are five characteristics of the tent of the wicked. The characteristics should cause 
any wicked or ungodly person to think long and hard about what they're doing and where they're headed. There are pictures here of the tent of the wicked who are headed for this terrible death, and they won't avoid the judgment of God. First of all, it's a place of darkness. Look at verses 5 and 6. Indeed, the light of the wicked is put out, and the flame of his fire does not shine. The light is dark in his tent, and his lamp above him is put out. So like a candle that is suddenly extinguished, the light of the wicked is removed. The light of life is snuffed out and replaced by darkness. What was once a flickering flame is now replaced by the emptiness of darkness. And so death is certain to snuff out the light of life, and ultimately there is no hope. So Job, listen to what I'm saying. This is Bildad speaking now. If you don't repent of your sin and foolishness, death will suddenly come and snuff out the life of your li- uh, the, the, the light of your life, and you will be in total darkness, a place of disorientation, of uncertainty, of confusion, and of despair. It's a place of darkness. Secondly, it's a place of bondage. Listen to how verse 7 introduces the theme of bondage. It says, his strong steps are shortened. In other words, the wicked man moves from being a man of strength and vigor to being a man who is weak and without energy to press on in life. His schemes are throw, uh, throw him down. In other words, he becomes entrapped in his own clever plans. No matter how smart he is, scheming through life, he cannot escape death. And by his scheming, he's created his predicament, and now he is in bondage to it. And so we're told here he is trapped. And notice the words used to describe his bondage. Just kind of notice through these verses 7 through 10. There's a net. There's a mesh. There's a trap. There's a snare. Right? There's a rope hidden. There's a trap. Okay? These are all words to describe this is what you are going to be experiencing. He's, he's like a bird caught in a net by its feet. He's like an animal that, that steps blindly into a mesh that is covering a pit and will find only death and judgment there. He is caught by his heel like a mouse in a trap. He's ensnared in a noose. All of these are images that are pointing or painting the picture, I should say, that death and judgment await the wicked man and are inevitable and unavoidable. They are unescapable. So Bildad is saying to Job, I am warning you, if you continue down this path, claiming innocence and defying the way of the world, the order, uh, the, the order of the doctrine of retribution, you are heading into a trap. A noose is awaiting you, and you cannot see it. And when it catches you, you'll not be able to escape. That is true for the ungodly Job, and that will be true for you if you don't reverse your course. I see this is pressure, isn't it? Pressure. Job, you got it wrong. Conform to what we're saying. All right? It's not only a place of darkness and bondage, it's also a place of fear. 
Notice how this section is bookended by the word terrors. Verse 11, terrors frighten him on every side. Verse 14, and is brought to the king of terrors. And between those bookends are descriptions of what is happening to him in his torment. He's being hunted and hounded on every side. He's frightened by these terrors. He's exhausted from running to avoid them. He's pursued as prey by a predator that is ready to pounce when he stumbles. Death comes and eats away at his skin. A deadly disease takes over his body. He is torn from the security of his tent. He's brought to the king of terrors, a personification of death. This is not the kind of world that you want to be living in. This is not the kind of destination you want to end up in. But it is a place of fear. In fact, focus in on that word calamity in verse 12. It says this is all calamity. It's a word that means destruction, ruin, disaster. It's used 24 times in the Old Testament, each time in a section of poetry. And it's a word that expresses the devastation of eternal ruin that, that awaits the wicked when they die. I mean, this is, this is a powerful word. We, we kind of use it kind of casually. But calamity here is a very, very strong word about suffering and destruction and end. It is calamity. So it's a place of darkness, a place of bondage, a place of fear. This is what the wicked man has to look forward to. This is the kind of world in which he lives. It's also a place of destruction. In his tent dwells that which is none of his. Sulfur is scattered over his habitation. His roots dry up beneath and his branches wither above. So his tent becomes a place of destruction. His world becomes a place of destruction. Sulfur destroys his dwelling place and kills every living thing in it. Now friends, this, this is clearly an allusion to Genesis 19 verses 23 and 24. And that's the passage where we see God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, where God rained down sulfur and fire from heaven to consume them because of their sexual wickedness. God's fire and sulfur destroys and utterly destroys everything that is there. And so it will be for all the wicked. What was once a flourishing tree has now been destroyed. This is the, the verse 16, now the picture that he's using here. Both below the ground and above the ground. It's destroyed, first of all, below the ground, his roots dry up. In other words, there are no roots to now sprout something new. They have been destroyed. Now, some of you wish that would happen in, in your home, right? There's some, there's some stuff going on in your, your yard that you wish that you could get down to the roots and take care of it. Well, this is what's happening here. It's taking care of it. That tree, that plant will not ever grow again. It's done. And as well, it is destroyed above ground. His branches wither. Not only is the, the life of the wicked snuffed out, but it, so is his family and, and any future descendants. You can't get away from how specific Bildad's Words are to Job's experience. Job, if you continue down this path, you will destroy everything about your past and your present 
and your future. In other words, Job, you're already experiencing those things which are true about the world of the wicked. So we see the place of darkness, the place of bondage, the place of fear, the place of destruction, but now the place of what I'm calling forgetfulness. Let's just read verses 17 through 20. His memory perishes from the earth, and he has no name in the street. He is thrust from light into darkness and driven out of the world. He has no posterity or progeny among his people and no survivor where he used to live. They of the west are appalled at his day and horror seizes them of the east. The wicked are forgotten. That's what he's saying. They are thrust from light into darkness to be driven out of the world. And as such, they become a forgotten people. A forgotten person here. Memory of him perishes from the earth. If you're wicked, he's saying, you're not going to be remembered. Not only that, your reputation is forgotten. No name in the street. And finally, your family will be forgotten. He says here, no posterity, no progeny, no survivor. In other words, there will be no children, no subsequent generations that have come from you. It all ends. Everything is lost, past, present, and future. This is what the wicked have to look forward to. Now again, do you see how directly Bildad's words are speaking to Job's suffering? Job, what has happened to you is known by all. In the west, they're appalled. In the east, they're seized with horror. It's so devastating. It's so so decisive. His, His demise was so quick. And no one wants to be in his shoes. Now, just think of those sections, those descriptions. In a general sense, those descriptions, I think, do describe the path of the wicked that leads to destruction. It's darkness, it's bondage, it's fear, it's destruction, it's it's forgetfulness. But we end up here in verse 21 with a warning. This is ultimately what he's getting at. You notice that the section began with, indeed, and then he lists all these things. Now, He kind of stops and he says, surely, (laughs) having said all this stuff, surely, what I've described to you, such are the dwellings of the unrighteous. Such is the place of him who knows not God. This is, he's saying, a picture of the tent of the wicked. And Job, I'm warning you, because I don't want you to be in that tent. And I think, I think ultimately this is well-intended. He's not saying this to slap Job down necessarily, although there's a lot of slapping going on. He's doing this because he wants Job to snap out of what he believes is his foolish persistence in claiming his innocence. He wants Job to conform to the wisdom of the world, to embrace this doctrine of retribution, to acknowledge the fact I have sinned, and the reason I'm suffering is because of the sin. The problem is Job knows that isn't true. And although Bildad's description, in a general sense, is a good picture of the tent of the wicked, it is not a right picture of Job. Now, friends, I'd like for us then to move from the tent of the wicked here to what I'm calling the tent of the wise, 
And this, friends, is more us applying what we have just looked at and thought through to our context and some things that we can learn out of it that will help us not make the mistakes that Bildad is making or help us if we are kind of in Job's situation to look at the world that we are interacting with. So here we have four practical applications for those who wish to be wise. Number one, this flows out of the last statement here. I want, to hear, I want everyone to hear this. The road to destruction is real. We can just have grown up in the church and gone to church and learned moral things all our lives, but not actually come face to face with the reality that those who do not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, those who have not been the recipients of his grace, are destined for an eternity in hell. And that, that eternity in hell is real. It is a place of suffering. It is a place of hardship. It is a place you do not want to go. Now, some say in our society, and even within, I would say, Christian culture, people who really don't care, they'll say things like this, I want to go to hell because that's where my buddies are going to be. I want to party with them. I want to have fun with them. You don't know what you're saying. You will not be experiencing happy things in hell. Hell is not a place of fun, sinful activity, and cracking jokes with your friends. It's a place of eternal torment and the fire of God's eternal punishment. The expression that we find in Scripture a number of times where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth doesn't convey fun times to your friends. It conveys suffering that is so deep and so gruesome and relentless that you are in utter and eternal misery. And friends, there is a warning here. And maybe for us who are God's children, it's a reminder of what God has delivered us from. It's not just that he's delivered us from hell. That's part of the gospel. But he has reconciled us to him, right? From hell to him. And what's more important is the him than it is the hell. But let's not forget the fact that hell is a real place from which we have been rescued. And other people who have not bowed the knee to God continue down the path in the way of the wicked. And they are not heading for a fun eternity at all. It's a somber thought, isn't it? Now, you and I cannot convince everyone that we meet. But we are called to live our lives in such a way that when we are asked, that we are able to give an answer for the hope that is in us. And we are also to live with a, with a mindset that we have a, a moral responsibility. So you're interacting with neighbors and coworkers in such a way, or people that you meet in such a way that you're saying, God, you've placed these people in my life, and so I'm going to live my life for your glory in that context and pray that you will give opportunity for, for right kind of discussion that would point to you. Why? Because there is a warning 
And there's a truth about that warning that hell is a real place. So be warned, secondly. Shifting gears considerably here. When you're trying to help people who are going through various forms of suffering, you must learn to be gentle with them. Bildad got so frustrated with Job's unwillingness to listen to his and the other two friends' counsel that he lost his patience with Job. There's a tone in this chapter of, you know, of wake up, stop being foolish, listen to what we're saying. You're behaving like a wicked person. And so his tone is all wrong. So there's two issues with Bildad that really are worth us just reminding ourselves of. What he was saying was wrong and how he was saying it was wrong. So first, we need to be sure that what we're saying is actually true, that the counsel that we're giving actually flows from Scripture. It's not just your own kind of societal, family kind of paradigm that you're bringing to the the situation. You know, well, you know, in our family, we do such and such. It doesn't matter what you do in your family. What matters is what God's Word says to that particular situation. How How can I speak and counsel truth? And friends, you can have truth, but speak truth in all the wrong ways. All right, wearing a t-shirt that says repent or you'll go to hell is probably not the best way to convey the idea of a sovereign God sending a son to die on the cross for your sins. It probably conveys something other than that gospel message to most people that are hearing it. So we must have the truth But then secondly, we need to be sure that how we're speaking that truth reflects a gentle and sympathetic tone that is seeking to guide that person toward Christ and his purposes. Now, especially when someone is going through a trial, especially when they're going through suffering, we need to be patient. We need to be gentle. We don't need people to to, to kind of snap to attention because we're speaking. We We've got we've to empathize with them and, and let them somewhat um, simmer on the things that we're presenting and pray for them and just allow them to come to these things. Again, it just, it just reminds us of the need as we are able to have a good theology of suffering before we get there, right? So both what we say and how we say it matters. Third, Be discerning. Be discerning. When we're seeking to help those who are going through suffering, we must also be discerning. Bildad concluded that Job was suffering because of his sin. And then he began to preach a sermon to Job, warning him of the path of the wicked that will end in death. And his sermon was, I would say, generally accurate in many ways, but he was preaching to the wrong person. So we've got to be careful that we learn from this account to be very careful that we don't quickly come to conclusions about others. We must be patient. We must listen. We must ask diagnostic questions that seek to understand more what's going on. We must pray. We must put our nose in the text of God's Word. And then when we've done all those things, we review all those steps again before we even think about coming to a conclusion. And I think our human nature 
when people are suffering, when people say things, we so quickly want to put them into a category. Boom. And once they're in a category, now I know what to say because of this, because of this, because of this. And you can jump into a category and start speaking to that person because they said something that sounds like that category, and now you're giving them counsel, and that person's sitting there saying, I don't want to listen to this because what you're doing has nothing to do with what I'm struggling with right now. And the problem there is not the person who's suffering. The problem is the person who's trying to help but is not willing to listen and not willing to be patient and not willing to actually allow the Word of God to fashion and shape them. You know, one of the, one of the great ways you can learn the Word of God is by helping other people because it forces you then to open your Bible and to study what God's Word says about a certain topic or a certain issue and that you begin now to process it in such a way that it's applicational. And you come along and you say, hey, here's what God showed me about this particular situation. Let's talk a little bit about that. Your heart begins to, to think through God's word and this person's situation. Friends, this is so important for the body of Christ. This is foundational for any believer who is seeking to counsel another believer from the word. And, and just remember, hear this. It's not that we have counselors in our church. We do. And it's not just one or two people. We are all counselors. The question is, what kind of counsel are you giving? And all of us are giving counsel. But what is that counsel and where is it coming from? So we must take sin and its consequences seriously. We must speak gently and give the hope that only comes through the gospel. We must listen, and then listen, and then listen, and then listen some more, bathing it in prayer and gospel reflection. So we must be discerning, friends. And as a body of Christ, we're only going to be growing better with one another if we are discerning in this way. And finally, I'd like to use this expression, and it may not be as clear as the word clear is, but I do think it's important to recognize that one of the problems that, that Bildad had in his sermon is that he overreached in some of the things that he said. In fact, if you remember, he, he said basically that the path of the wicked means that you will be forgotten. Now, I know, I, you know, I can get an idea of what he's trying to say there. But do you remember a person by the name of Hitler? How about Charles Manson? Or a Ted Bundy? Now, what I'm trying to say here is this. Sometimes in our desire to help people, we will actually say more than the text says. We will say more than what the Bible says. Because we're trying to paint a picture, we're trying, to, we're trying to give direction here, but we must be careful that we don't say more than what the text says. So on practical applications here, you might be witnessing to someone who's, who's, you know, their life is a mess and all these different things are happening, and you're saying, you know what, if you'll just come to Jesus, everything will be okay. And so they pray and they start coming to church and things get worse. Because money doesn't appear out of nowhere. 
Mortgages are still due. Relationships are still, you know, uh, you know in, in, in turmoil. Certainly, coming to Christ means now you'll have a different frame of reference, and it will be fueled by, by God and his spirit and his word working in you. But it doesn't mean that everything just falls into place. You see, it's an overreach to say things like that. And sometimes in our simplicity of the gospel, we say things that are not true. Seeking to help people. And what people end up holding on to are the things that we've overreached with rather than the truth that we've given. So we need to be careful here, okay? I want to finish up this morning by just sharing with you two illustrations briefly. The first one has to do with the death of the French philosopher, atheist, um, antagonist of Christianity, uh, by the name of Voltaire. He wrote many things to undermine the church. In fact, once he said of Jesus Christ, curse the wretch. In 20 years, Christianity will be no more. My single hand will destroy the edifice it took 12 apostles to rear. Let's just say, it's been longer than 20 years. Okay. Well, on his deathbed, he turned to his doctor and he said, I am abandoned by God and man. I will give you half of what I am worth if you will give me six months life. The doctor replied, sir, you cannot live six weeks. To that, Voltaire responded, then I shall go to hell and you will go with me. Soon after he died without Christ and entered into an eternity in hell, According to his physician, Voltaire cried out with utter desperation as he died. And add to that the attending nurse, having watched him die such a bitter death, was reported to have said, for all the wealth in Europe, I would not see another atheist die. The death of the wicked, friends, is never a pretty sight. It's a somber, sad, and heartbreaking reality. Now, just, just hear me, please. I know that sometimes family, friends, and people that we know, that we love, who don't know Christ, die, and we want to have a celebration of life. And it's because we don't want to actually face the prospect of an ungodly person dying. It's not, a, it's not a pleasant thing to think about. It's not a pleasant thing to experience in your family world. And then to think that so many people will die without Christ and will perish without hope. Secondly, I want to talk to you a little bit, and I think I've shared this before a couple of times, but I'll do it again just talk to you a little bit about my parents. I had godly parents. Now, they weren't perfect, but they were consistent. They loved and served the Lord all of their lives. Unfortunately, in her latter years, my mom, uh, or Alzheimer's, took over my mother, and after two years of care, she went home to be with the Lord. She may not have been able to recognize me, although I was living at a distance at that point in time, but even in the midst of her Alzheimer's, she would 
rejoice in Christ, that God still gave her that, that window of understanding. Um, and a few months later, my father entered into intensive care, suffering from myeloma, which is cancer of the bone marrow. And he was alert, and um, the only thing that was keeping him alive was some medicine that they were giving him, but the doctor said, listen, we can't just keep on giving you this. This is, this is only a temporary thing. And he said to me and my siblings, listen, I've, I've lived a good life. God has been gracious to me, and I'm ready to go home to be with Christ. I mean, it was just a very calm kind of conversation. And so he set up a time, I think it was the next day, around 2.30 in the afternoon, where we were able to talk with my father. We were still here in California. My brother and my sister were there at the bedside. And they called, and my father wanted to talk to all my children. So one by one, he talked to them, and in that talking, he, he, he gave them a blessing, so to speak, you know what I'm saying, as, as, a, as a grandfather. Talk to me, talk to my brother, talk to my sister. They took him off the medicine. About an hour later, he was gone. Now, first of all, we're living in a society where you don't experience that kind of deathbed experience much anymore. It's all happening behind curtains and all that kind of stuff. So for me, in our family, what a privilege it was to, to be a part of my father's homegoing and to connect with his confidence in knowing where he was going to be. That he could say, tomorrow at 2.30. <laughs> Friends, it's, it's, it's a heartbreaking reality, death, but it is a reality. And those who die in Christ can die well. Not all do. They can't. Those who die without Christ often fight against God to the end. There's a saying. It's an old saying, but it's a helpful saying that I think is appropriate for us to close with. No God. No hope. No God. No hope. Do you know God? Do you have hope? Lord, we ask that even though this was a sermon preached in error, maybe well intended to help friend, that it would, Lord, give us a grid of understanding that there is a way in which this world works, Lord, not a, a doctrine of retribution where there's the, the way of the righteous and the way of the ungodly, where the way of the righteous, Lord, just simply are righteous somehow. And, and any sin they may have, Lord, is, is, is taken away, whereas the, the unrighteous sin and they live with the consequences of that. Lord, we recognize that there is a doctrine of grace and restoration and reconciliation that is part of how the world works. And you've revealed that in your word. And Lord, we who come to you by faith because you've drawn us are people who are wicked 
and ungodly who are destined for an eternity in hell. But by your grace, Lord, you've breathed life into those of us who believe so that we can be brought into your family, so that we can experience eternal life, so that we can have that hope. But may that gospel truth just live afresh today, but also give us perspective in, in how we interact with others. And Lord, even how we filter what others are erroneous, erroneously saying to us about our struggle and our predicaments. Lord, we know that you are a sovereign God. You have ordered the affairs of this world. You have provided a son to go to a cross to die in our place and to bear the wrath that we deserved and through that reconcile us to yourself. Lord, we, we need to, to rest in those truths. And Lord, like Job, may we be firm and be discerning and not give in to the pressure of, of, a, of, a, of a world that is counseling us away from the truth. Lord, may we be bold to believe what we know to be true because you have revealed it clearly for us in the pages of your word. Thank you, Lord, for this time, for your counsel, for your truth. We ask these things now in your name.